Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is the Low Level Hall Podcast, episode 21. Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast, a program that explores the world of rotary and fixed-wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. guys welcome back to the show episode 21 as we're wrapping up season one i appreciate everyone who's been listening for leaving comments and ratings those really help out the show so i encourage you to do that if you haven't already and of course i want to say a big thank you to my patrons for supporting the show and supporting everything that i do here it really means a lot and i appreciate it well i hope you guys enjoy this episode i think you will i had a lot of fun talking to our guest and we'll just jump right into it Robert Curtis is a retired colonel in the United States Marine Corps. He flew AH-1 Cobras and commanded a UAS squadron. Sir, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. I appreciate you coming on board and uh, appreciate uh, Hugh Mills for introducing us. I asked him to uh, give me some interesting guests, but instead he gave me you. <laughs> He's a great American. <laughs> well, sir, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into aviation. Uh, yeah, I was... Uh born in a small town in Maine, uh, Milo, Maine. I grew up in Maine and, uh, I didn't, didn't always want to be in aviation, but I always wanted to be in the Marine Corps. Uh, since I mean, the earliest I can remember, that's what I was going to do and, uh, going to the Marine Corps. So, you know, early seventies, mid seventies, um, my dad got his private pilot's license. Um, and, and he was using, using it for his business, but he would take us flying and I really loved flying. I thought this is great. But uh, but I'm going to be a Marine. So, you know, and then uh, by the mid 70s, there was that show that Robert Conrad was in about uh, Pappy Boynton, you know, the Black Sheep Squadron. Hmm. And uh, I saw that and I'm like, oh, because before that, I didn't know Marines flew. And I was like, <laughs> I can be a Marine and an aviator. And it was just like the, the greatest thing that ever happened. So I was like, uh, that's what I'm doing. So I graduated high school and <clears throat> um Joined the Marine Corps. I mean, I didn't even go to my graduation. I uh, was talking to the principal. I said, hey, when am I done? And uh, he said, well, the graduation's on the 10th. I said, yeah, but when am I done? I don't necessarily want to go to the graduation. I just need to go to, need to get down to Paris Island. Um, so sure enough, I uh, I left June, uh, June 5th, go down to Paris Island. And uh, on June 10th, when my class was graduating, I was sitting down there at Paris Island in, in the receiving barracks thinking, what what was I thinking? Why Why did that seem like a good idea? <laughs> but uh so i i worked on um ov10 engines i was, I was an ov10 mechanic for my enlistment my four years and uh, i got out went to um maine maritime academy got an engineering degree 
came back in the Marine Corps and um, flew Cobras. And it's been, it's, in my opinion, uh, the the most magnificent airframe ever. I mean, that's the only thing I'd ever want to fly. Yeah. Yeah, like I was saying, I, I've been wanting to get a, a Cobra pilot on the show for a while, so I'm, I'm fascinated to talk a little bit about that. But So you worked on OV-10s. Um, that is another aircraft that I've always just been fascinated with. What I mean, what was that like working around those things? It was great. And, you know, again, it is a magnificent aircraft. It's fantastic. And, and uh, you know, and I wasn't very mechanically inclined. I learned that all in the Marine Corps. Um hmm. And then sort of work on those engines and, and take them out to the test cell and run them up and then see the airplane, uh, you know, flying in, coming in for the break and taking off and, and uh, doing its mission was just always fascinating. It really it was, that was one of those airplanes that um, would have been really cool to get a ride in at some point or fly at some point, but I never did get that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they're making sort of a comeback, too. I've seen them kind of being used as, as contract aircraft and doing things overseas. Yeah, yeah they're doing that. And they're also doing... Um, spotting for fires uh so they're, they're calling mm-hmm. in the other which was its mission you know it was a reconnaissance aircraft in a fac a platform uh back in vietnam into the 70s and early 80s and all, all through the 80s but it was um uh so now it's doing the same thing for the fire department out uh, out west so they, they, they'll call in the uh firefighting aircraft yeah no that's a that's an interesting looking bird so uh, we've had some Marines on in the past, so we've got some idea of, of the the path uh, to get the wings and, and everything. But going through training, you know, at what point did you did you want to fly helicopters or how did you know, how did it come to the to be that See, path we, for you? Yeah, we all start in, in the back then the T-34. They're now flying the T-6. But um, and you kind of get a feel for what you what you like. And, and someone told me at some point um, I'd never never really flown a helicopter. I said, you should need to go down to South field and whiting that's broken in the North field and South field T-34s are now T-6s are in the North and South field is, uh, is the helicopter. So I went down, they said, ask for a, a maintenance hop. When they do their maintenance hops, they'll let you jump in and, and, uh, fly. Mm-hmm. So I went down there and, uh, I said, Hey, I, I just really like to go up in a helicopter and, and fly it. And the guy's like, yeah, sure. And he took me out and we did the, the whatever maintenance, uh, post post maintenance flight thing he needed to do. And then we went out and he just uh, kind of taught me how to hover. Let me let me try doing certain things and let me try taking off, landing, taxiing. And mm-hmm. um, I really liked, uh, although, it was, you know, normally we were up in the T-34s, you're at thousands of feet and uh, and going, you know, 170 to 190 knots. But down low, um, I, I really liked being closer to the treetops and going 100 knots. Uh, you get that, you get a much more that feeling of speed. And uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So, and it just, it felt natural to me to be flying a helicopter. Yeah, I think um, I think that perspective of being down low. I I I've probably told this story on the show before, but uh, I flew a JTAC, a couple of JTACs one time. Air Force guys flying around, just doing a little familiarization flight in OH fifty eight, and uh, you know we're down over the trees, you know maybe maybe a hundred knots, and uh, the kid says, "Man, this is so much cooler than the time I flew in an F sixteen." And yeah. uh, and I think what he was really getting at is the fact that he could feel that speed versus when yeah. you're yeah twenty thousand feet you're going five hundred knots but you, you just don't feel it so right um, yeah and I think there's certainly something to be said for just being down low in general like there's certain people that like that and some people that want to be yeah. up high and that's great but uh, that that's pretty cool too I think for for you like I mean that's sort of um, a welcome to the culture as well I mean th- things may have gone differently if you'd have gone down there and the guy had just you know kind of grumbled and put you in the aircraft because he had to and did the bare yeah. minimum but really showing you 
all that stuff and giving you that opportunity probably probably endeared you to the the whole thing. It did. And I'll be honest, I, the entire time I was down there in flight school, I, I never had a bad instructor. The instructors down there were really uh, top shelf guys. Um, again, you know, they loved flying and they loved teaching. So um, I, I never had a bad experience with those guys. That's great. So yeah. finishing up school, um, I'm assuming at some point you get told you're going to fly H1s and, and how'd that transition go? Yeah. So I, <laughs> I was, I was down there, and um, after your uh, radio instrument 18 check ride, when you're, for your instrument check ride, uh, you put in your dream sheet uh, of what you want to fly, and you say, you know, aircraft over coast is my priority, and which I did, and I wanted Cobras East, but I was pretty convinced uh, there was no way uh, we were going to have a Cobra slot. They were pretty, they were they were rare. They, each class might get one or two, and um, the class before me didn't have one. Um, but my best friend had, had winged in that class and he did so well. He was, um, on the Commodore's list of distinction. He was just, he was a natural, he was really good. And they said, well, look, if he did that well, we're going to make him a Cobra slot. So they, they <laughs> gave him one. So I thought even if we do get one, they'll use that to backfill the last class. Yeah. But, um, <clears throat> I come in one day and, um, I walked through the door and a couple of my friends congratulated me and I was like, okay, for what? And, and they, they go, Hey, you got Cobra's East, man. I'm like, no way. It's everything I wanted. And I was like, uh, <clears throat> that's fantastic. And uh, so I went back and I said, hey, no kidding. I got Cobra's East. And the guy goes, yep. Um, and, you know, ironically that day, uh, we were going out to fly my external hop, you know, where, where you go out there and learn how to fly external loads and put them down, pick them up and fly them around. Of course, I'm never going to do that as a Cobra pilot. So <laughs> uh, he said, let's just go out there and do this hop and fly around and have some fun. Said, let's go. It was a great yeah. day. So what version of the AH-1 did you start out in? Uh, so I was uh, whiskeys. I started out in whiskeys, and uh, um, they were just coming online. Most of the guys that uh, were uh, um, just a little bit ahead of me had started out in uh, J's and T's and transitioned to whiskeys. But we, uh, I wasn't the first class by any means, but I was like in the first, first group of guys to go right to whiskeys. And then, oddly enough, when I retired, they were, the whiskey was going out and the Zulu was coming in. So, you know, I don't know that much. And I'm sure there's plenty of people listening that don't either. I mean, tell us a little bit about the the iterations of the Cobra, because I, I think a lot of us understand, you know, that was pretty much the world's first, you know, dedicated gunship and it was single engine aircraft. But it, but what are those transitions? Where did it become a, a twin engine and, and get more blades and all the doohickeys that it started to get? Yes, you're right. It was the first dedicated attack helicopter um, and it was made very common. Uh, in common, as far as components went, with the Huey. The Huey had been a gunship in Vietnam, and now they come up with the Cobra. It used the same engines, um, same drivetrain, you know, the, the commonality between the two platforms. Uh, one was skinny and one was wider, that's all. And, well, and the weapon systems were different, obviously, but um, but the components, you could you could switch them out. Um, the, the Marine Corps, because we fly over water, wanted multi-engine. We did not want a single-engine uh, airframe. Sure. So they, uh, they got two of the twin engines. And then um, they went in, they, there was the J, and then there was the T, the T-toe, when they put tow missiles on there, they put a telescopic sighting unit in the front and the nose, mm-hmm. and they put a tow system on there, and uh, they beat the engines up at that point. And uh, so then you had the T-toe, what's it called, the T-toe, and that's what they flew until they transitioned to the whiskey, and then they went with much bigger engines. Uh, you know, the T-700s were much bigger than the, the, uh, the T-402s that they were in the uh, older, older Cobra. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, much bigger engines, telescopic sighting unit, uh, Hellfire missile capability, 
AIM-9 capability, and it had the 20 millimeter cannon that had carried over. But um, and then they, they put in uh, the night targeting system came on board mid 90s. Uh, so then you had a FLIR, you had a FLIR in there, and um, so that that uh, that brought night capability up a little bit. And now they've transitioned to the uh, Zulu model, and that is bearingless, uh, four-bladed rotor head and, uh, and tail rotor. It's got it can carry twice as many missiles, um, PG precision guided missiles, PGMs. Um, it's just it's got a much better sensor on the front, and it's just a, it's an incredible machine. I've actually I never got a chance to fly that one, but um, when I was at headquarters Marine Corps uh, APW, um, I worked on that program. That was my program as the uh, requirements guy uh, when I did my out of cockpit tour. But it's uh, it's it's an amazing machine, and it used to be, you know, like I said that when we went to the from the Tito to the the whiskey, that we had these big T seven hundred engines, but you couldn't the transmission couldn't handle all the torque from the engine, so you could only right. at any given time you were you were transmission limited. But if you were at one hundred percent transmission torque, you were just over half fifty percent engine to engine torque. Oh, so wow. now with the new drivetrain they put on that thing, now you can use the, all the engines. Hmm. Oh, so yeah, much more substantial. Powerful. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah so it used to be no big deal to fly a single engine because, again, you were only ever using half the engines when you had both of them. So single engine, you were just using the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So for the J model, you said that was before the the tow. What what were they? What was like the main arm? It just basically rockets and gun or rockets and guns. Yeah. And then uh, for the newer stuff, you mentioned the AIM nine. Was that was that just kind of one of those things where on the books you could do it, or or was was that actually part of the training regime and guys actually knew how to employ that? Yeah. So, no, it's part of the training regime and you do get to employ it. Um, mostly in the simulator. And then every, every year you get a couple for, uh, training purposes. You might get one or two and it was a big contest. You'd have a, you know, again, there'd be an exam, a written exam and whoever scored highest on the exam, if they hadn't shot one yet, got to go shoot them. And, uh, I was telling you that friend of mine who had graduated before the winging class before me, he and I, uh, scored highest on the test, and so when we were out uh, out of Twenty Nine Palms, nineteen ninety five, we got to go shoot our A nines. Oh wow! Yeah, and they fun. just like throw a drone up or something, or how does that how does that work? Yeah, it was, it was uh, so when aircraft goes out, another another Cobra goes out a pie and, and just um, comes at you, comes flying towards you, poops out a flare, a Lu two flare, and then hauls ass, or and then hurries up and gets behind you, and as soon as he's behind you, he calls it. And uh, the the missile actually shoots at the flare. You shoot at the flare. <laughs> Are you kidding? No, <laughs> no I'm not. <laughs> oh, the nineties. <90s. laughs> yeah, good, good times. Oh, I can't even imagine that. Uh, so, um, and then you guys had hellfires. Was it kind of the same? Where every now and then you get a few live ones to shoot. Yeah, we had uh, again. We did everything in the simulator as well. And then uh, yeah. the hellfires were um, everybody shot a hellfire. Everybody did not shoot an AIM-9. You, you, you were pretty lucky sure. if you got an AIM-9 in your career. But um, Hellfires, everybody everybody did, did shoot a lot of Hellfire and a tow, a lot of tow. For rockets, was it mostly just the, the 2.75, or did you guys have the, the bigger 5-inch? Yeah, we had, we had the 5-inch. Uh, the Whiskey was capable of, of uh, shooting the 5-inch, and uh, primarily we shot 2.75, but you go out and, and uh, it wasn't uncommon to go shoot 5-inch, the Zuni rockets, and they were a lot of fun. Yeah, what, I mean, I I know they exist, and that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge. What's what's special about them, other than I assume it's a much larger boom? 
it's a much larger boom. So it's like a 105 shell boom. Wow. But it's uh, yeah, it's a lot. It's a much larger rocket, more powerful motor. So on the Cobra, when you shoot them, um, the, the the amount of smoke from the motor, you'd go IFR for a couple seconds. I mean, it was just but you know the, the smoke from the motor would, uh, would would wash you out for a couple seconds. And also, it would overpressurize the ammo bay. So the, the ammo, so you'd get an ammo bay door open caution light every time you shot one because it would overpressurize that ammo bay and it would go in and out and, and oh, trip wow. the uh, trip the alert. Gosh, did that ever yeah. affect the engine performance? No. All that smoke and everything. No. Okay. Okay. I, I only ask because we had a, a warning w- with the Apache that if you shot. I can't remember now. I can't remember, but you know, it was like if you shot too many rockets within so many seconds, yeah. it could cause surging with the engine or whatever. Right, um, and the engine has an automatic relight. So what they found when they were when they were testing the the Zulus because we never had any any of the uh, you know the, um, the testing probes or, or sensors on the on the whiskey when I was flying it anyway. And then what they found was it was it was actually causing perturbations in, in the engine, but it would relight so you wouldn't notice it. You could you know the pilot um, wouldn't notice it unless you're instrumented for it. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And then for the gun, was was that also helmet mounted cueing, or was it totally through the sighting system? How did how did you use the gun? So you had you, you got you could fire it fixed forward. Um, in the in the back seat, you'd have a switch, and it would give you front seat or back seat shooting it. He could go fixed, and and you have a reticle in the HUD, fixed forward guns. Uh-huh. If you were and and, you know, and it was also um, connected to the helmet. And then okay. in the front seat, you could use the telescopic sighting unit or you could use the helmet. Okay. All right. Could you guys, um, in the Apache world, we'll call it WAS, weapon action switch. We could WAS different weapons, right? So the front seater could be WASed up uh, Hellfire and, and, and messing with that while the back seater is WASed up gun in case something you know close range popped up. Could you guys do something similar or was it all yeah, so- everybody's focused on the same? No, we had a switch. It was either uh, um, co-pilot or pilot in, in control. So if you put it forward, that the back seat, the guy in the back seat would, uh, which was the pilot seat, the primary of the pilot seat, and um, he would have rockets. And then if you had the gun up front, uh, then he, you'd have the, the gun and he'd have the rockets. Now from the, you, you could only shoot a toe from the front seat because you had to have the TS, the telescopic sighting unit, the TSU, to guide it. Um, you could only laze uh, the target from the front seat. Because it was also mm-hmm. connected to TSU, but you could shoot the Hellfire from either seat, sure. and then you could only okay. only you can only shoot the AIM-9 from the back seat because um, you had to, again the reticle was back there, and that's where the only firing switch was back there uh, on the collective. Okay. Now, okay. now you could in the front seat um, go pilot override, and the guy in the front seat could take the rockets from from the back seat pilot and shoot uh, and shoot rockets. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and y'all primarily just did like running and diving fire with the rockets or was there, did you guys do a lot of work with like hovering fire and using the site? Yeah, we did it. We did it all. Uh, we do, we do hovering fire. We do, uh, you know, the loft delivery, you know, your pitch, the pitch delivery and yeah. you do, uh, mostly running and diving fire. We, we, we like, we prefer to be running and diving just cause it's more accurate. Uh, sure. but I was at, uh, as a 29 palms or a combined arms exercise, what we call CAC. And I was flying with, um, uh, commanding officer, Stosh Conant, magnificent guy. And he, um, he goes, we're going to go out there and we're going to do the pitch delivery charts. We're going to validate them. I said, Hey, great. <laughs> Young Lieutenant, just new to the squadron. And, uh, so we went out with a, uh, we didn't have an integrated GPS at the time. So we had a Trimble trim pack that would sit up on the, the dash of the front seat. And we found a target when we marked the position and we went back and got behind another, um, basically masked behind a terrain feature. 
and he said he gave me the he goes heading and uh, distance to the target and so i went and i did the, he took the controls i went into the pitch uh, tables figured out what the pitch was and um sure enough we you know i got, got on that heading in a hover pitched up to, to the uh to the correct uh, angle fired the rocket and they were it was an accurate it was an accurate uh, table hmm. yeah it's interesting yeah i mean you could I guess on the books, you could shoot rockets pretty far, you know, I want to say yeah. around seven kilometers, but I mean, you had to have a pretty extreme pitch angle to, to make that happen. So usually yeah. I didn't see that, see that happen too often. No. So tell us a little bit about the employment of the Cobra, like w- within the construct of the Marines, like how, how would the Marines use the Cobra? What is it? What is it for? Well, we did, um, obviously close air support. Uh, we did escort, um, battlefield illumination, because uh, we, we we could shoot illumination rockets, um, we we could escort the uh, assault. Basically, we 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 escort the assault support platforms in, um, then CAS, FAC A. Uh, we do pretty much all the missions with the, with the Cobra. Okay. So it was uh, it was a again a very capable platform, and uh, so we we could pretty much do anything we needed to. And when when you guys are out on the ship, primarily just stationed on the uh, or those. Uh, LHAs, is that right? Helicopter assault uh, ships or something? Yeah, LHAs. Now they're the LHDs, and uh, mm-hmm. used to be the LP LPHs. But then we could also we could go on the smaller decks. So the LP, um, the LPDs. Back when we had LPDs, we could go on board those. My first deployment, uh, we we plussed up the Cobras because we were going to Somalia, and we put uh, eight Cobras on an LPD, and that was the Cobra ship. Uh, everyone else was back on the um, LPH. Okay. Well, yeah, let's um, transition kind of back to you. I mean, tell us about that first, that first assignment. So you, you finished school and I guess finish all your qualifications and you show up. How, how'd that work out? It was great. I mean, I, I, I left, uh, you, you go from flight school, you go out to the FRS or the fleet replacement squadron and that's where you specialize. So that's where you learn how to fly the Cobra. Um, so I went out there and about four months, five months, um, got through that pro that, that, uh, that syllabus and, Went to came east to uh, New River Air Station in Jacksonville, North Carolina, and uh, joined HMLA 167. Uh, again, that's where my my best friend had gone, and uh, so he uh, he got me pulled into there, which was great. So now he and I are in the same squadron, hmm. and we spent uh, as soon as I got there, we went out to uh, 29 Palms for a combined arms exercise, and uh, so that which was a big eye opener because now you're really employing it. Um, in tactical scenarios, you're not, you know, at the FRS, you learned how to fly it. You did some tactics, but now you were really learning, getting into the, uh, you know, the tradecraft of what you were training, what you're training to do. And that's close in what they used to call close in fire sports. Now, now we call it uh, rotary wing cast, but you do escort missions. You do everything you did day and night. You learn how to fly on the goggles, doing the highlight level and then going to low light level. So it was a, it was a big eye opener. Uh, then I got back. And I say so I checked in in December. By June, we were chopped because the way the Marine Corps deploys a uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit, the um, every the Marine Corps is, is organized in a MAGTAS, Marine Air Ground Task Force. There's a command. There's the same four elements, just scale. So you have a command element, a logistics element, a ground combat element, uh, and a uh, aviation combat element. So hmm. the ACE for a MU or the aviation combat element for the MU is a composite squadron. So that it was built around a CH-46 squadron or what now is a B-22 squadron. And then it gets a detachment of Hueys and Cobras and a detachment of 53s. And okay. that's how it would deploy. Now, now with the LHDs, you also get a detachment of Harriers. 
Hmm. So I went down, chopped the squadron uh, to uh, HMM 266. There's workups, you know, now you're going to get on the boat. So you do all your, your uh, carrier qual training and go out in the boat and learn how to operate off the boat, which again, you know, big eye opener. And then of course, we were, when I found out we were going to Somalia, they plussed up the Cobras. So instead of going on the big deck with the rest of the squadron, we all went over to the uh, the LPD and had our own ship, which again was, uh, you know, a new learning experience. So you got to go over there and learn how to do that, uh, which was fantastic. So when we, so when we deployed in January, we headed straight through, we stopped in at Rota, Spain. Um, we were there a day or two, maybe, and then, um, right through the, uh, Suez Canal around and off the coast of Mogadishu where we, um, went in. And did, did liaison with the, the army that, who, that were already there. And then the Cobra debt went ashore. Everyone else operated off the ship and the Cobra debt went ashore. And we did, uh, uh, Operation Quick Draw. So we were there. We did eyes over Mogadishu for about a month and then Quick Draws and we pulled everybody out of Mogadishu, all the American forces out of Mogadishu. That was March of 94. Yeah, I'm looking up a picture now of the LPD, just kind of wrapping my head around it. Yeah, that's that's not a lot of deck space. <laughs> nope. Nope. And then we had expanded spots. So there's two main spots and then uh, expanded spots. And then we had the hangar. And it was crowded. It, wasn't, it was close quarters. Yeah, I've talked to several people at this point of who've had to land on various ships. And I just, I can't, I can't wrap my head around it. Just especially at night and pitching decks and everything. It just sounds absolutely terrifying. It was exciting. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Um, like I said, you get into the, the night landings and and it gets uh, sometimes it gets sporty depending on the sea state and the weather. Sure. So how long were you in that first initial assignment before they kicked out and made you go do something else? Uh, about three years, two and a half, three years. And then um, okay. I went into a forward air controller tour, uh, which is something the Marines do. They have an aviator with every ground unit. So I was with uh, Second Battalion, Second Marines, and um, which I mean I, I couldn't have got luckier as far as uh, I, I was going over there. And you learn a lot of, about how the infantry uh, operates. I mean, you get a lot of that when through you know because every Marine's a rifleman, so you get a lot of that through the basic school, and, and we're always supporting the uh, the infantry. So, but you not, but I, and, I, and to be honest, I thought I had a pretty good handle on it until I got there. Then I realized, wow, I you know I had a lot to learn. Um, and to be able to learn it from the guys that I did, I was in a battalion with um, uh, General or Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Gaskin was the CEO. Um, he retired as a three-star. Jeff Kenny was uh, was my company commander, and uh, Jeff Kenny won the Leftwich Award, but, you know, which is the uh, for the for the infantry, like infantry officer of the year kind of thing uh, that year. Uh, Eric Mellinger, Eric Smith. I mean, I, I mean, I was with this rock star bunch of infantry officers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, Sergeant Major Rosenfeld and, and, and infantry Marines. And I was just learning uh, a ton, you know, just a ton. So it was, uh, it was a great experience. How long of a tour do you do as a, as a fac? One year. Typically. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. One year. And, um, we, I deployed with them as well. We went back on the Mew and, um, we went over to, uh, into the med and then we were doing cool. We did some cold weather training in Albania but we were sitting in Naples on Liberty when um, it was 96 in Liberia, the embassy in Liberia. They were having some um, down there. We had uh, uh, Chuck Taylor or Charles Taylor and, and Roosevelt Johnson, and they were going at it. And uh, they had started impacting the, the uh, embassy. So we shot down there and did a embassy reinforcement in a non, 
combatant evacuation operation in NEO out of there for the next uh, few months. So do Marine uh, deployments, are they sort of, I don't want to say routine because it sounds negative, but there, there's always going to be a deployment. It's not necessarily tied to events in the world. It's just, okay, this Mew or, or whatever is going to go out from this time to this time, or, or how does that work? Right. There, there's uh, yeah, it's a scheduled, uh, scheduled deployment. Okay. And none of them are, like you said, they're not, there is no typical one because something always happens when you go out. And that was what I really loved about the Mew uh, and deploying with the Mew. Cause once you pointed, you know, got on the ship and pointed East, you, you, you had a plan, but you knew, never knew it was going to happen. I mean, the first one, like I said, we went to Somalia and, and got to operate there. The second one, I got to go into Liberia and operate there. And then the, the third one, um, I went over and, and we were just, uh, we were in the med and uh, we ended up going through the ditch again or the Suez Canal again and going up and uh, supporting operations in the Northern Arabian Gulf. So you just never know what's going to happen. You're, you're, you know, there's always a Mew deployed ready to react to any to anything that goes on. Mm-hmm. Always. So uh, once, you know, the, the Mew will leave North Carolina, they'll do a turnover right around Rota, Spain with the outgoing Mew, the outgoing Mew comes home. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. And then I, I assume something like that's happening West Coast as well. Yes, correct. Okay. Um, so uh, how many tours did you do where you're in a flying billet and and deploying? Um, so I did two. So I did 167, and then I uh, I got back off my Ford Air Controller tour. And um, back then, if you if you hadn't been out a year, then you didn't have to go back and refresh. So and I had uh, I'd been I got back in like 363 days, so I was good. I didn't have to go back and refresh. I checked into HMLA 269, which was the other uh, Hewing Cover squadron at New River, and um, started working up to go to uh, Weapons and Tactics Instructor Course, WTI, out at Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadron 1, which is MOTS 1, which is our um, graduate-level weapons and tactics school. So I uh, started doing working up for that, and um, I, I went out to uh, WTI in February. And uh, I came back, graduated, came back, and I wasn't supposed to chop to go on another Mew for an over for, for a, another year. But um, uh, tragically, we had a, a mishap, and I had to. I was one of the guys that had to go replace the air crew that we lost, and uh, so I ended up chopping that July, yeah, July, and uh, getting back on the boat. Uh, to go back to the WTI, I mean, I, I think we've we've talked about it here on the show before, um, but tell us a little bit about that school and, and that training and, and what it all means. Yeah, it's, it's um, so the, the weapons and tactics instructor uh, certification uh, for, for all aviation. And, and we had ground people out there as well. Now uh, takes place um, in Yuma, Arizona at MOTS one Marine aviation weapons, tactics squadron one. And um, they take the, the instructor, you know, they take, take your, Every squadron takes the guys that they want to be their lead instructors, their, their weapons and tactics gurus. And you might get to send one or two per class. There's two classes a year. And you go out there. And uh, it, back then it was six weeks. I think it's longer now. I think that they, they've added a few things in there. But it was uh, it was six weeks, and it was a six-week sprint. Um, I mean, you were just, you know, going at it hard and heavy. Uh, there was an academics phase uh, where you had academics, and that lasted for about a week and a half. And then you went into a common flight phase where, you know, certain, you know, each community flew uh, with, with each other. And then there was the generic flight phase where you go out and now it's, you're flying with everybody. You're integrating with everyone um, to include joint assets and other, other service assets. Uh, 
Uh, we used to get one of the night stalkers that we usually come, we'd get one night stalker per class come through. Hmm. But it's, um, it's like I said, graduate level weapons and tactics. It's, uh, things you don't usually get exposed to. Just a fantastic course. Very, very professionally run. Um, uh, when I was, like I said, when I, when I was, once I went out on the boat and, uh, 269, I got the, uh, I got a call, you know, to, to come back out as an instructor, uh, which I did. And so I went out there as an instructor in 98. How long, how long of a tour is that? About two years? Three years. Oh, okay. That's good stability after having to get on the boat all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'd done three, three deployments in four years. On, uh, and then, uh, so when they called me to go out there, you know, it's, it's Yuma, Arizona, which, uh, you know, so I talked to my wife first. I'm like, Hey, uh, is this, is this something you'd be willing to do? <laughs> Cause yeah. what they say is your wife will cry when she gets there and cry when she leaves, uh, which was <laughs> pretty much the case. Yeah. Well, that's good news, honey. I don't have to deploy for a while. Bad news. For yeah. Going to Arizona. <laughs> But they ended up with my wife and kids. They all and they ended up loving Yuma. Yeah. We had a great time. It was a good tour. Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes you get those those postings that you're fully expecting, you know, just be absolutely terrible, and then end up leaving. You're like, well, I actually kind of enjoyed that. Yeah, but I felt the same way yeah, about I, Texas. My wife too. She did not want to go to Texas, but we actually kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. In 33 years in the Marine Corps, I never got a bad deal. I never got a bad tour. Hmm. Some better than others, but never never a bad one. Yeah, yeah. Some, not everyone gets that lucky, but uh, yeah. yeah some a lot of times though, it's it's what you make of it. Yeah. Um, so when you completed uh, an instructor tour, what what happened next? So now, yeah, I, I, I picked up major, and um, I uh, a couple of my mentors had said, hey, you know what you need to do is go to school and go to the Pentagon and uh, do your Pentagon tour, uh, which. Pre 9/11 was good advice. Um, unfortunately, while I was at school, 9/11 happened, and uh, and it kind of switched around. So I went to the Command and Staff College uh, for a year, then I went up to the Pentagon uh, to Aviation uh, Programs Weapons (APW) as a requirements officer uh, for three years. And um, so the, the the bad thing was, you know, my country was now going to war, and I was at the beginning of a staff tour. I was, you know, I'm, a, I'm at a desk job for the next three years. Um, but luckily for me, a, a friend of mine called me or sent me an email and the only thing the email said was call me. So I got on the phone, I'm like, what's going on? He's like, um, how would you like to go to Iraq as a forward air controller? I said, I do. And he goes, there's one billet coming up to the Pentagon tomorrow, up to, um, aviation hallway. So start positioning yourself. Hmm. All right. So I went into my boss, Colonel Rake Schwartz, great guy. And I said, Hey, uh, I think this thing's going to be really air centric and they're going to need forward air controllers. And if they do. I think I should go. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he's like, okay, thanks for that. Now go back to work. I'm like, yes, sir. No problem. <laughs> so I went back to work. And of course the next day the billet comes down and there was 12 of us that had been forward air controllers. And he pulls us in the office and he looked at me. I'm, I'm pretty sure I can't say what he said to me, but he said, you knew. <laughs> and I said, uh, yes, sir. I did. <laughs> and he goes, uh, uh, I said, uh, well, what would you do? And he goes, well, I'd done the same thing. He said, so, uh, he goes, I just want to let you all know that, uh, you know, you've all got, considered but uh sideshow's going so i got to go as a forward air controller from the pentagon uh for oif1 oh wow so i went up yeah that was february 3rd february 10th i was at camp pendleton getting my refresher for forward air control procedures and then uh, soon after that i was in kuwait uh getting attached to third lar wow yeah so tell us a little bit about how that went but yeah and again you know it's just uh 
I just couldn't have got luckier. Third LAR. I was with a rock star crowd. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Clarity, who's uh, now, th- now a three-star. He was our CO. My company commander was Gordon Miller, who's just a rock star. And uh, so I was, again, I was with a, just a fantastic uh, group of guys. I get out there, and they said uh, – so I asked. I said, hey, what, what are we going to be doing? Because most of us uh, – well, all of us, actually, were majors. And most, most mm-hmm. facts, you're like a, a junior mid-level captain. And we were like mm-hmm. mid-range to senior majors. So I figured they're going to throw us on a staff somewhere. And the guy's like, uh, no, you're going to be a, like a company fact. I'm like, great. I said, what, uh, <laughs> what company? Awesome. And, uh, and he looked at me. It's like, well, you know, you have LAR experience, so we're going to put you with third LAR. And I said, okay, great. I had, I had never had any LAR experience. I'd never even <laughs> sat in an LAV. Um, but I had sat in an AAV, and I, did not, I knew I didn't want to go back to that. So I said, I'm in. Because an, LA, an LAV is a Cadillac ride compared to an AAV. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about the LAR. Uh, Light Armored Reconnaissance um, uh, Battalion, and we would get we would get uh, attached to one of the RCTs and, do, and go out and just do recon missions, screening missions, escort missions, things like that, uh, route recon. And um, so I got over there, and uh, of course we we cross the breach and and we go in there and we just start uh, get, get and going for tasking, and and nothing. Uh, for us, because I, I, there were times because the way you're the way you're uh, employed, uh, you know, the way you're supposed to do things doctrinally is uh, a company fat calls back to the battalion air officer and requests air, and they get the air and they give it back to you, and then they send it to you, and, and you you uh, employ the air. Well, I didn't have contact with my battalion air officer much of the time, mm-hmm. so there were ten uh, tactical air direction nets, tad nets. So what I would do is I just get on the radio. And, uh, you know, any coalition aircraft is a sideshow, you know, radio check. They'd come up and I'd find out who's up, what they had for uh, ordnance and how much time on station they had and where they were at. We had a keypad system. And so I knew it. if I needed air, I kind of knew where I could go to get it because um, I couldn't get it the doctrinal way. Right. So it was, uh, mm-hmm. it was, a, it was just a great, uh, a great tour. Uh, we ended up going up through, we had, we got ambushed twice on the way up to Baghdad. But then we got through Baghdad on the way up to Tikrit. We ended up um, securing this intersection that the rest of everyone else is going to go through and go up to Tikrit at Samara. And while we were there, uh, we found out that the American POWs were in, in that town and um, and they went in and rescued them. Hmm. That was Shoshana Johnson and the, the Apache pilots and those guys. Hmm. I think there was eight of them. Yeah, that was a good day. That was a great day. Yeah, that. Uh, how often were you having to call in aircraft? Uh, for, for attack, not very often because, um, again, you're not really supposed to get decisively engaged. You're up there to do reconnaissance and kind of probe and, right. and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. but the, um, I would call them for medevacs. Um, for instance, when we rescued those POWs needed to get them out of there. So, um, I called in, uh, some 46s to come get them. We'd had a medevac the night before. Because we had um, we had had somebody coming uh, coming at the roadblock, uh, did everything we we're supposed to, flashed the lights, did everything. He wouldn't slow down. Uh, did the warning shots, didn't slow down. Engaged the vehicle. It was some old guy and his son. Hmm. Um, wounded him pretty good. So we had to put we had to get a medevac in to get him and, and his son out to get uh, to get taken care of. So I set up that LZ, and um, and then they and they they took out the next day when we had the the POWs. I'm trying to get a hold of someone. I can't get, can't talk to anybody. I ended up uh, relaying through, and I think it was an F-16. 
but uh, you know they always authenticate you. But, but the uh, air tasking order, the ATO, is supposed to come out daily. I hadn't seen one since since day one. So <laughs> right. So he he um, he comes back and he goes, "Hey, authenticate this." And I, and I said, "I haven't seen an F and ATO since day one." And he goes, "Okay, that's good enough for me." And so he he relayed it. <laughs> um, we get a we get a uh, section forty six is in there. Uh, call sign Grizzly pick up the POWs and took them out. Yeah, I'd worked with the uh, LAR. I think it's is it second LAR is out on the west coast. No, yeah, first and third on the west coast, and second on the east coast. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can't remember. Maybe, maybe it was, I, I, I did a doctrinal training for a, a course in the Army for reconnaissance, and we got invited out to the the LAR training center out at um, in San Diego. Yeah, and worked with those guys, and and yeah, it was it was interesting because you know you, you don't think about that type of organization. I think with the Marines, you know, you, you typically think of the the infantry and the the Cobras yeah. and the Harriers, but then there's these kind of this the slice off of of those little. LAVs, which are incredibly tight quarters. I mean, I'm six foot four and they, they took me out to get in one and I, I couldn't even get in the turret, you know, it was just, it was oh, just man. yeah. <laughs> well, as a fact, everything. I was, I was in the C squared, the command and control variant. So I wasn't in an LAV 25 like you were, I was in an LAV that was set up for, uh, the fire support team, the fish team. So we had our, our already forward observer, our mortars forward observer, our, uh, fish team leader, myself, the, the FAC, um, the driver, the vehicle commander, and the radio man. So that's that we were all in one, one vehicle. Wow. That's that's a crowded vehicle. Nonetheless. Yeah, it was. It sure was. Huh. But it smelled great. <laughs> we did have a rule: <laughs> no, you couldn't take your boots off in the vehicle. All right, just don't. No one's taking your boots off because we we didn't shower for almost forty days. So right. You know, you had uh, baby wipes. You'd kind of take a baby wipe shower if you stopped long enough. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd get outside the vehicle. Uh, you know, if we had, if we had a little bit of downtime to stop and eat, we'd, we'd take off our boots. And I mean, the stench was just, I mean, it was debilitating. Which, you know, and, and it's funny, you th- you think of typical aviators. I mean, we, we don't really get into those kind of situations. So here you are basically living, living the ground guy life. I mean, every, I mean, it sounds every, like you enjoyed it though. I loved it. Every Marine rifleman. And that's, uh, we take yeah. that very seriously. And it's, uh, I, I, both my fact tours were two of the best tours of my career. I, I loved them. Absolutely loved it. So when you got done with that, uh, with doing that fact, did you get back yeah. in the cockpit or, or what happened next? No, no. So then I, uh, cause I was, I was working at the Pentagon, you know, so I only, I only got out. I only went to do the fact tour. Um, I think I was gone five months and I was back in the Pentagon mm. to finish up my Pentagon tour, um, which I did. And then I, um, rolled out of there, um, in 2005 came down to North Carolina again, the second Marine aircraft wing and was immediately deployed to Iraq, um, as part of the wing forward staff. And, um, so I, I flew over there, uh, with HMLA 167. So I was back in the cockpit. I refreshed, went back, went back in the cockpit. Um, so I was over there for seven months and, um, again, just a, a good deployment with really good people. And, uh, yeah, so I stayed there and I came back and then I joined a, a, a HMM, as, as their ex, as their executive officer, which was kind of unorthodox back then, because normally they would pick the XO from one of the debts. But when the mag commander uh, called me, he said, "Hey, what, what, where are you going when you get back?" And I said, "I didn't know." And he said, "Hey, how would you like to be Floyd McCoy's XO?" Now Floyd and I had been friends for a long time, and we've been out at Motson as uh, instructors together, and um, absolutely loved the guy. And I was like, "I would love to be his XO." And they're just like, "Okay, so 
you're going to the squadron, but you're not going to be part of the debt. You're going to be no kidding part of the squadron. I said, that, that's fine with me. I'm in. So I went, uh, I linked up with uh, HMM-264 as the executive officer and, uh, and I flew Cobras with 167 uh, while I was there. And then when, they, when we, when we went composite to do the Mew float and they brought the debt up, I obviously just, uh, I flew with the debt. So it was good. And we, and we, and we deployed. What was a typical day like in Iraq for Marine aviation? Cause I, I obviously in the army side, we basically just kind of showed up and flew forever. Uh, you know, either aerial QRF or sat on the ground waiting. Was it pretty much the same experience for you guys or was it a little bit more deliberate? Uh, both depends if there was an operation going on, then it was deliberate. But if it was uh, just a normal day, uh, day in the life, it was, you were either going to be medevac chase or strip alert. Mm. Uh, so medevac chase, if there was a medevac, we'd link up with the army, uh, H-60, you know, Blackhawk, go mm. to wherever the casualty was and then escort, escort that flight, um, to, to the casualty and then escort that flight and the casualty to, uh, either Baghdad or Blod. So you either go to cash South or cash North and, uh, right. drop off the patient and fly back. If you were strip alert, then you was just, hey, if they called and they needed uh, gunship support, you jumped in the covers and went. Uh, did you guys do any like aerial QRF or, or was it strip alert totally? You were on the ground waiting for the call? Uh, mostly, mostly it was um, on the ground waiting for the call. And then the next squadron that came in, um, there was an aviator, a good friend of mine, John Hackett. He was a great guy, call signs Blade. But he came up with the idea of let's do uh, Aero Scout. Let's do a Huey Cobra team. And in the Huey, we'll put in you know, uh, a fire team plus of Marines, you know, like six Marines. And then, so if we needed to go down there and, and, you know, impact something, we can do it like right now. And, uh, so he did that. He, he drew up all the uh, tactics, techniques and procedures and, uh, kind of, uh, introduced it, pitched it and and they bought it. So then, uh, it was after I left with them, they started doing that. They started employing that. That's something that when I was flying, Kaya was, I mean, we, we talked about all the time and of course it wasn't a new concept, you know, I mean, Vietnam, they were doing that, but right. we, so many times we'd wish we could have had a Blackhawk with us with, you know, some dudes that could drop off and check something out. Cause you'd find these yeah. suspicious things in the middle of nowhere and no one's, no one's going to go out there and, you know, we're not really in a position to land and check it out ourselves. So, right. Yeah. That's pretty neat. Uh, did you ever deploy to Afghanistan or was it all Iraq? No, I did. Um, I left, I left the, uh, the joint staff after, um, after my, my 05 command, I went up to the Joint Staff, and uh, when I left the Joint Staff, I went down to uh, 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force, 2MAF, which is the East Coast Marine Corps, MAGTAF, and um, deployed to Helmand Province as the uh, Fires Effects Coordinator with uh, 2MAF Forward. Oh, okay. Well, what year was that you were in Helmand? That was 2013. Oh, okay. I don't know. I was there. I was in Kandahar couple of years before that we yeah. we had helped uh plan and support the marines going into Hellman. what was that 2010 i think nine yeah when they kind of pushed back in so okay uh so how did you get involved in uas because you commanded a uas squadron how'd that come about i did well before see now we have actual uas officers uh back then we did not um so hmm. All the office, you know, the enlisted uh, personnel were, were UAS. Uh, you know, their MOS, their military occupational specialty, was their job. They were U.S. guys. Uh, but what they used to do is the officers would come from different communities. So normally, when you take command, you know, if you take command of an HMLA, you know, you've grown up in that community, you know, the people, the personalities, the issues, uh, everything that goes with it. Um, it was different when they said, "Okay, you're going to be in charge of a UAS squadron because you're the least experienced guy in the room. You don't know anybody, and you've never <laughs> done it before." And uh, so for command, uh, the way the way the command slate works is uh, 
a lot of times there's more good guys, more command guys to get command than there are billets. So they, yeah, they, sure. they put you in, into something like that. And I, I just happen to be lucky enough. Actually, the first, first I got, um, headquarters and headquarters squadron, H and HS out in Yuma. And hmm. uh, that's when I was supposed to go, but I had, uh, I'd been blown up in 2007. And I was, you know, pretty good burns, pretty severe burns. And, 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 uh, I said, Hey, you know, they, and when I was walking out of the hospital, as a matter of fact, um, the doctor had just told me, Hey, you know, stay out of the sun, you know, stay away from really hot places, really cold places. And, uh, you know, you, you're going to heal up in about a year. I said, okay. And I walk out the door, I get a call from a friend of mine congratulating me on my command. I'm like, really what I get? And he goes, H and HS Yuma, like only the hottest place on the face of the planet. <laughs> so I said, Oh, so I called, I called a friend of mine at manpower and I said, Hey man, um, I just heard this. I mean, you know, what are my options? And he said, Sideshow, he goes, they knew about your accident. They knew about your burns. And that's the command they gave you. Your options are accepted or decline it. Hmm. I said, all right, I'm going to accept it. So I was going to accept it. And then um, another friend of mine who had gotten VMU too, I said, hey, would you be interested in switching commands? There's a process to go through. But I mean, before I start this process or, you know, I want to make sure if you're good with it or not. He goes, yeah, because, the, you know, it wasn't, well, it wasn't that quick, but he determined that, yes, he would be willing to do that. So we went through the process and switched commands, and I ended up at VMU too. So what was that like? I mean, tell us a little bit about how that squadron is was built up and what it's equipped with. So back then it had uh, Shadow RQ7 and it had Scan Eagles uh, for the UAS, smaller UASs, and it was mm-hmm. it was headquartered in, in when you're deployed. It was headquartered in uh, Alpha Cotton or TQ, and then okay. but what I, but I would have debts. Uh, I would have Scan Eagle debts. I think I had five of them in in Iraq. And so they, they, they had the debts out and then they would, we, we'd launch the, the, uh, AV or the UAS and it would go and then they would hand it off to the debt and they would fly it in their, their sector. Mm-hmm. So again, okay. you know, really interesting, um, great people to work with. I mean, really great people. I, I keep in contact with them still today because they're just wonderful people, but, uh, it was, it was an interesting mission. Yeah. Scan Eagle's the one with, uh, it lands by basically grabbing a wire on the wing or something. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think we had those up in uh Terran when I was there. Yeah. Just hang the wire down and it would just kind of run into it and snag it on the, on the side of the wing. There's like a hook or something. Yeah. It's the most awkward thing you've ever seen. And, uh, yeah, they do that. It was, yeah. and they came in and it's like, Jesus, that, that can't be smart. Who thought of that? <laughs> yeah. It's very strange. And then the, the shadow is a much, much larger, uh, a flying lawnmower. Yeah, basically. yeah, it really was. It was and it had a, you know, but you could switch, you know, uh, IR or, or um, um, you could do so you could do FLIR or you could do the, the HD uh, the, the camera and you could so but the, with a scan eagle it was either a day bird or a night bird you know because they put the sensor in it was either a FLIR or, or a camera. Oh, but um, yeah, but it was uh, yeah the, the shadow was was different. We, we fought to get more type. Eventually we got a, a laser designator on it. So you could use it to designate for hellfire and things like that. Yeah. And then, uh, and com relay capability, it became a much more capable platform, but, um, now it's, uh, now they're not using that anymore. They're, they're using the blackjack and, uh, okay. and again, yeah. So hopefully we're going to get into, uh, uh, preds and reapers at some point. Well, I imagine that would be a little bit more, I mean, the Marines are meant to be light and, and mobile and stuff. Yeah. And you start getting those larger systems. That's a lot of tail that's, that's coming along with it. True. Yeah. We had uh shadows when I was a XO for an Apache squadron. And um, yeah, I mean, they're starting to arm those things now. And 
kind of poops out little bombs and stuff. And of course we had the, like you said, the laser designator, laser designator. And, uh, in fact, we, I think we designated a few bombs, uh, in Iraq on my last tour. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's becoming a much more capable system. It's crazy to think about, you know, how the past 20 years is, has culminated where it has with unmanned systems. Oh yeah, That's absolutely. Really and, and, and it's get, it's getting, it's moving, uh, much faster than it used to. I mean, technology yeah. is just blazing speed, you know, new capabilities, just things we only dream about, you know, um, are now happening so rapidly. Yeah. It was one of the biggest challenges when I worked at the joint readiness training center, uh, last year, a little over a year ago. And, uh, I mean, that was just one of the biggest hurdles for, for units is understanding that as a threat, you know, cause we're just, we're just not used to fighting people that have those kind of capabilities. Um, right. but, but, but even, even just leveraging our own, you know, sometimes we really don't think through how to, how to use those systems, but they're just so capable. And if you, if you really think through the, the way to integrate them with other systems, I mean, it's just the, the, the units that came through that actually knew how to, you know, integrate what their shadows were doing with what their Apaches were doing. Yeah. Uh, they would just decimate the op four, but, but the units that didn't, it, you know, nothing, you know, it was just, it was just wasted space and a lot of noise in the air. Yep. So how did your, uh, I mean, you, you said 33 years you served. I mean, how did your yeah. kind of career culminate and what are you doing now? So I um, had OC's command at, uh, at Little Creek, and then I uh, left there, and I went to uh, Second Marine Aircraft Wing. Uh, I was chief of staff uh, for Second Marine Aircraft Wing my final years. That's where I retired out of in uh, 2019. Um, and so that was, uh, that was a great tour. I really, I really enjoyed that. And now when I retired, I, I uh, went to work for Northrop Grumman, and uh, so I'm working for them and uh, really enjoying life. Well, so I got to ask a sideshow. How how did that name come about? <laughs> yeah, so call sign. You know, you know, either either you're you do something sufficiently stupid uh, to get a call sign, or you, or uh, you know, your your name just lends itself to one. And um, so I had you don't really need one until you're leading a section because a section goes by your call sign. Um, oh, okay. So it's you know sideshow flight. You know, so until you're until I was leading sections, I didn't need one, so I didn't have one. And, uh, you, you know, there's rules to call signs and you don't violate those rules. Like one, you never give yourself one because you, that's not right. going to end well for you. Uh, two, you never, ever tell the person that, that gave you the call sign you don't like it because then you might as well get a tattoo because it's yours for life. Right. So um, we, I was out on my first deployment and got my section leader and there's like, well, you got to have a call sign. I was like, yeah, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Because, you know, when they, when they try to force it, it doesn't go well either. So um, So they came up with one and they're like, yeah, that's it. But um, I was like, okay, and and I, and I had it for a little while. It didn't really didn't really catch on. And then uh, a dear friend of mine, we're in the ready room, and and they're like, hey, you know, this this thing isn't working for us. You know, we got he's got to have a better call sign. And my friend Wally, uh, he, he goes, listen, he goes, he's sideshow Bob. Okay, that's it. That's his call sign, and that just stuck. <laughs> and he was just another lieutenant. You know, it was, it was really weird. Just right. bam, he's got sick of the debate and said, I'm going to end it. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, sometimes that's all it takes. Oh, yeah. Call signs. There's so many. I mean, we had a guy in a brief and he fainted during giving the brief. And so his call sign was Timber. You know, Timber. <laughs> he went face, he face planted. And we had one guy try to give himself one. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, that just didn't go well. So he was, uh, you know, he gets in the party room and they're like, hey, tell us about yourself. He gets up there and he's, you know, we're, you know, we're just giving him a whole hard time. And he goes, he goes, well, I don't have a call sign, but you know, if you guys look at me, you kind of, you guys see, I look young. So 
you know, you, you can call me the kid. And then from the back of the room, how about turnip? Cause you just fell off the turnip truck. And that was his call sign. Turnip. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we don't, um, you know, in the army, we really don't do the call sign thing. Like you'll, you'll have some guys get kind of a nickname, you know, and it'll, it'll stick with them, but, but it's never been anything that's kind of official like that. I knew a Bambi, uh, she was a, um, a Dutch Apache pilot. And, uh, and I, I met all these Dutch Apache pilots when we were in Afghanistan and, um, you know, they had a couple, couple female pilots and, and one of them was, was Bambi. I said, why do they call her Bambi? And I guess she was on a range one time and engaged what they thought were troop targets and it was a bunch of deer. Yeah. So that's how she got her name, but, oh, good times. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time, sir. And, uh, I'm glad that we finally got this lined up. I know we had some, some difficulties there with, uh, trying to do it overseas. Are you, you heading back over anytime soon? Or are you home for a while? Well, now I'm home for a while. I just had uh, okay. just had some uh, hernia surgery, and I'm recovering from that. Mm-hmm. And then um, I'm going. It's one of us. Uh, there's five of us that do my job, and it's really a four-person rotation. So every every once in a while, one guy has to take a knee for longer than he'd like to. So I'm gonna be I'm gonna be home till January. Oh, okay. That'll be good. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, excellent. Well, yeah, I'm very thankful for you to take the time and, and share that with us. Uh, it's fascinating to hear about the Cobra and uh, and your experiences in the Marines. And um, thanks a lot for coming. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to Colonel Curtis. I really appreciate him coming on and appreciation to Hugh Mills for introducing me to him. Uh, we spoke a little bit after the show, and of course, our patrons will get that bonus content. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. You, you might have heard him say something about being burned. Well, you're going to learn about that, and it's, uh, it's pretty wild. Again, if you want to support the show, you can join Patreon, and of course, you can just go down and leave a rating and a comment. Those things don't cost you a dime. Just a reminder that the merch store is open. I'll put a link down in the uh, show notes. You guys can check out uh, various uh, shirts and cups and all kinds of doohickeys. In fact, I've even got some masks on there since we seem to be uh, wearing those still. And uh, you guys can check that out. I appreciate it if you do. we got a few episodes lined up here for the rest of the season, so I'm just kind of getting through the editing process of that, and we'll get those out here in the next few weeks. A reminder that the comments made by the guests and crew do not represent the Department of Defense or any private businesses. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate all your support. And we will talk to you guys again soon. Take care.